passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to another episode of the long and winding Royal Road. Our look back at the classic 1990s era of all Japan pro wrestling. And uh, today we have a historic match that um, in many ways, like many people would argue, is the kickoff point of the start of what we call the Four Pillars era of all Japan pro wrestling. And it's Mitsuhara Misawa, the ace of the soon-to-be ace of All Japan Pro Wrestling versus the current ace at this time, Jumbo Suruta. This comes from June 8th, 1990 from the All Japan Pro Wrestling Superpower Series 1992 tour, day 19 at Budokan Hall. And joining me today, a very good friend of mine over in the United Kingdom, it's JP Houlihan from the Grapple uh, Spotlight and the Grapple Roundtable. JP, how are you today? Very well, sir. Absolutely delighted to be on. Um... How how is it? Is it, it sh- at least you're not in sumo hall during the summer in Japan, and you're coping with this horrific heat that w- that we're recording through at the minute? Well, I mean, the the you know we're recording this during you know global pandemic, and uh, true, and that includes like you know pretty high pretty high numbers relatively speaking in, in Tokyo. So the the chances of me going to anywhere watching a wrestling show let alone in tokyo are are pretty slim i i I don't know what they're gonna do for the for the g1 uh this coming fall uh i'm not going so i remember a comment you made which was no vaccine no wh and i think that's possibly the the soundest policy when it comes to to going wrestling at the moment and yeah over here in the uk it's um it's we, we don't really have much of a wrestling scene at the moment so it's uh you know, it's been great uh, having us on to be able to kind of dive back into a bit of all Japan history. And uh, yeah, absolute pleasure to be on with you again. Well, I mean, you've been on uh, previous shows with me before mm-hmm. and, and we talked about primarily New Japan Pro Wrestling and we talked about kind of like how you got into that. But let's talk about All Japan. And I know for a fact that you are a big fan of All Japan Pro Wrestling of this era. And I want to kind of find out for myself and let the listeners know like jp how did you get into like the 1990s all japan the first i was thinking about this and the first kind of exposure i would have had in a very kind of rudimentary way in terms of being familiar with names would have been through some of the aptomags and at the very back that you remember they'd have the top 10 listings and i think they had one i think they had one just for japan didn't they mm-hmm. and and at that point, I was aware of like all Japan and New Japan and New Japan awareness kind of came primarily through WCW and the kind of talent relationship there. Whereas all Japan was through these magazines and then very much kind of into the Power Slam era, Superstars of Wrestling Power Slam era. 
And at that point, it was getting into uh, tape trading. And it's it's such a stereotype of the first set of tapes that I ended up getting involved, sort of King of the Death matches, um, the bit of New Japan um, uh, uh, from the mid-90s. I think it was like Hashimoto, um, the, the Three Musketeers. And then at that point, it was like a mixtape of um, all Japan. And at that stage, it was it was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And but I never understood the sort of nuances. It was watching great wrestling, but I wasn't aware of these kind of characters as much. But, yeah, that, that was my first that was my first exposure really to all Japan. And who would you say, like, of, you know, the wrestlers who are like the main event stars at that time in the company, which ones, Mm. like which one, like which particular wrestler, like really stood out for you? It's funny because I wouldn't say necessarily he was like a main, a proper main event until sort of the the latter part of the decade. But for me, it was always the Kabashi story. And it was the kind of inherent sympathy that he drew. And I don't know, it's, it's sometimes I think it's just the sort of expression that he has as much as, as anything else. Um, so Kabashi was always the one that I liked, but then also later on there was, you know, he'd had the match with Joe and, and, and things with that uh, as well. So, and I was watching Noah in that early part. So I always think that Kabashi is one that I've kind of felt more, and because he'd always take the fall and he's so good at selling, he was always the one I was most drawn to. Yeah. For me, it was always, um, Kawada. Like, I don't know why. Like, I just saw this guy with, you know, like, black tights and yellow kick pads and just beating the shit out of people with, like, these massive kicks to their face. I was like, this, this guy's totally, for me, I, I love this guy. And But I also love Kobashi a lot. And I think for me, it was, like, the pecking order for, like, who I enjoyed watching the most was, like, Kawada, Kobashi, Misawa, and and then Tawe. And then mixed in there mm-hmm. was, like, Junakiyama and, of course, Stan Hansen and, and Terry Gordy and Steve Williams in there as well. Um, but, yeah, so... Then later, actually, because like I didn't get into this until like the late '90s, so like I'm not super aware of Jumbo Saruta, who we're going to talk mm. about today. But you know, going back to watch Jumbo in the early '90s and, and even earlier in his career, like you know when when he's like wrestling for the AWA, he wins the AWA World Title um, from Bockwinkle, and then he loses it to Rick Martel, and then Stan Hansen wins it from Rick Martel, which is kind of interesting, I think. Um, but watching him back then and then seeing his progression. It's 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 really interesting, and we'll talk about about this during the review of this match. Is how he's like this bridge from the '80s into the '90s, and how he really fits both those styles. Oh yeah, he really. Does. I mean, in some ways, he's almost he's like the. I was thinking about this. It's like he's two very much two steps from Ricky Dozan, isn't he? So he's got the obviously the bridge to Baba, and taking that on from that kind of late '70s throughout the 80s as well but he is he's like the he you'd think of him as he's part of the base for what the four pillars built upon without him and without this match do we get the misawa that you also what we ultimately get and the kind of you know the the hot streak that they had throughout the 90s um he is very much that kind of bridge and he's a he's a fascinating worker because of the amount of sort of American influence on him, I think as well. And it's the, it's these stuffs. And it, I always think during this lockdown period, I've found myself going back and watching quite a bit 
um, of 90s All Japan. And there's so many great guides and various other things that when you start to see the kind of like the kind of emotional story and journey that they're going on, I think there's something about Jumbo and because of his early death that's really tragic about him. And and I think that's one of the things that um, is really like I'm abs- I'm kind of really fascinated by Jumbo Saruta at this point. Yeah, I, I've really kind of done a recent deep dive into Jumbo um, in the last several months leading up to the, the, the first episode, the episode zero of this series, looking at the formation of the Triple Crown. But just watching a ton of Jumbo in the late 80s. It's just amazing to watch because he's wrestling mainly with people of his peers like Tenru and and Hanson and Brody and Ricky Choshu and people like that. And and then like how he kind of pivots towards like working with this new generation of guys like the, you know, Masawa, Kawada, Kobashi, Tawe, and how they're bringing a, a, a more, you know, more dangerous style and a more hard hitting style into the promotion that, you know, they see the groundwork led by Tenru and Jumbo and then they take it to another level. But then Jumbo is right there with them during that period mm. where they're developing. And also, it's, it's also worthy to note that, you know, Stan Hansen, a guy, another guy who started in the 70s, worked throughout the 80s, is also keeping pace with them. And these guys are now in their 40s, like, or hitting 40. And mm. and it's amazing to see, like, you know, the, the wear and tear, like, on their bodies from the 80s is, is, like, not really stopping them from working this new 90s style that's just, like, taking over all of Japan, not just, you know, not just in all Japan, but in New Japan and in various other promotions as well. Oh yeah, it's um, it's amazing how much he kind of keeps up at, at points, and I think also it plays really well into the kind of narratives around Jumbo as the kind of the guy who's on the downturn, and there's so much of him proving that he can still keep up, and he's having to work this very dynamic style. I mean, especially in this match because Masao as a wrestler is still sort of between the Masawa that we know and Tiger Mask 2 in terms of his style. That's, you know, and that feels very deliberate and it's a natural kind of evolution of where he progresses from. But it's a hell of a job that they're managing to keep up and for the duration of these matches as well. I mean, between this and the rematch, they're, I think they're both about 20. I mean, this one's, what, 23 minutes? I think that the rematch is sort of closer to about sort of 27. So he's, and, you know, you've noticed with a lot of these matches is, as much as they're working kind of rest holds, they're not really downtime. And he's keeping pace with them throughout all of this, which for a big guy like Jumbo is a hell of an achievement. Yeah, definitely. And he's like, you know, he's, he's about to hit 40. You know, he's, I think he's still 49 at the time of this match, but he's, he's, he's either 40, he's just going to hit 40. And, you know, he's put his, his body through a lot of wear and tear. But let, let's talk about this match. It's from June 8th, 1990. And I'm going to give a bit of a background before we get into it uh, here, JP. So, um, it's important to note that, like, um, just before, uh, you know, this match in earlier in the year, uh, Jinichiro Tenru, who was going to be like kind of the new ace of the company, you know, like he was, even though he's kind of a peer of Jumbo, he's he's not, he's kind of in that one B position. That he he just like won the triple crown, and the thing with him was that he had left all Japan. He he resigned from the company. He he went to form a, a company called Super World Sports. And this left, you know, All Japan promoter Giant Baba with a bit of a quandary as, you know, J- Jumbo is about to hit his 40s and had spent the last decade, you know, basically destroying his body in wars, not only with Tenru, but with Stan Hansen, with Bruiser Brody, Ricky Choshu, among a ton of other wrestlers. And, uh, you know, Baba, you know, saw this like vacuum being created in his company and he desperately needed to elevate his younger talent. 
and he decided the person to spearhead that particular movement was Mitsuhara Misawa. And now talking about Misawa here, at this time, Misawa was still wrestling as Tiger Mask 2, a gimmick that All Japan had, had kind of licensed away from New Japan for wrestling. And he, he, you know, like as Tiger Mask 2, he was, it was very unremarkable. JP, I don't know, have you, have you seen the Tiger Mask 2 Bret Hart match? No, I haven't. You don't have to bother. It's kind of shit, actually. It's, it's surprisingly yeah. not good because, like, here are two of the best workers in the history of wrestling, and they don't have a good match. I think part of politics was probably a big factor in that. And, and you know, like, I, I maybe, you know, Misawa and Brett just weren't clicking. Like, and probably would, maybe would never have clicked because, like, I think Brett wouldn't have really liked the Ultra Fan style of, like, hitting really hard. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of stylistically, and, um, and and sometimes you like to think, okay, sort of opposite styles make matches. That's not a style if one person is working really stiff and the other one doesn't like to work it that way and prides themselves on not sort of taking injuries and not causing any injuries as well. I could kind of see how that could happen. I'm intrigued now you mention it. But um, also, I always think of the, of the stuff that I have seen of the Tiger Mask 2 run, it's it's not a very spectacular run. It's not that he's obviously not a bad wrestler or anything like that, but it doesn't seem... It's it's almost like the moment that he takes off the mask is the real significance of Tiger Mask 2 itself. Yeah, so there's a tag match that he has with Toshiaki Kwada as his partner, and they're mm. fighting... Uh, who are they fighting? Samson Fuyuki and Yoshiaki Yatsu. And just, you know, a r- random tag match... You know, and then at some point, you know, uh, Misawa tells Kawada, hey, take this mask off of me. And then Kawada's like, okay, and he takes it off, takes off that mask and he throws it into the ground. Like he like, it's just like this albatross that was around his neck and he just got rid of it. And the fans go nuts. Like they're chanting his name. They know who he is. They know that that's Misawa under that mask. And obviously, you know, it's, it's very clear that the fans were clamoring to see Mitsuhara Misawa. They didn't want to see him as Tiger Mask 2. They wanted to see the real person, the rookie that they probably were following before his excursion to Mexico and before he came back as Tiger Mask 2. And so it's just amazing. And and you can see why, like, you know, Baba, you know, went with him because of, like, this charisma, this connection he had already had with the fans, even though he was wrestling under a mask for maybe a year or two before this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, and he looks so young as well doesn't he and even in the rematch which is only a couple of months later he still he looks a lot more grizzled i think after this match as well but it is that kind of crowd charisma and you see the way that they pop when he when kawada takes off the mask and then he throws it off into the crowd like they completely lose it it's obviously playing into the thing that um you know this atmosphere you hear from this match i mean it's kind of intangible and it's not like you know it's not like the man was it's a kind of unusual charisma isn't it it's not like it's kind of great kind of what we would think these days of could he cut a promo because even after this match it seems like it's a very he's somewhat quite shy and subdued still he isn't someone who's like a big talker but his charisma is just that kind of sheer stoicism and also you know i know you're going to mention it as well but it's it's that elbow and it's that elbow to jumbo that I think in many ways changes the perception of what maybe a lot of the all Japan audience saw him at that time. Definitely. Um, so from here, um, Misawa, 
you know, like, so he's going to spearhead this, this younger generation. So he had formed this group called the Super Generation Army with Kawada, with Kendo Kobashi, uh, Akira Tawe, uh, and Siyoshi Kikuchi. And these are all the, the younger members of the roster who are kind of like picked to be, okay, you guys are going to go into the main events or be in the semi-main events. And, and so, like, that's, and you're going to be led by Misawa. And in return, Jumbo formed Sarutagun, which basically means Saruta Army. For those of you who don't speak Japanese, and this is a faction of people from his generation and older wrestlers like Yoshiaki Yatsu, and this is before Yatsu jumps to uh, Super World Sports with Tenru later on, Masanobu Fuchi, the great Kabuki, and Mighty Inoue, who doesn't, and the last two, Kabuki and Inoue, don't really factor in into the the more significant parts of the Jumbo versus you know Super Generation uh, feud that happens in, over the next like two or three years. Um, Surtigun would later get bolstered when you know they get their own younger talents to to jump ship over to. To, to their side with the, the acquisition of Akira Tawe and also and later on we would see the inclusion of a, a young junior heavyweight uh, by the name of Yoshinari Agawa who is still wrestling to this day in, in Pro Wrestling Noah JP isn't he a champion there as well I think he's one half of the tag champions at this at he is one half which I, I yeah from having seen the, the sort of latest Noah show it was something I saw when he popped up and I was like oh my god like 2020 here we are um, but yeah, it was, I, I loved, I loved the idea of the Tawei move just because it obviously kind of sets him apart and he wasn't as sort of naturally charismatic as the other, but it's also very, it makes a lot of sense. If you want to be the ace, why wouldn't you want to learn from the ace as well, rather than being kind of against them? So it's, it's, is it really as close to a kind of angle per se as sort of all Japan do around this time? Um, yeah, I mean they have angles like, you know, throughout their history. Um but this is kind of like I would say, you know, like the encompassing program in the company, mm. you know, that everything kind of takes a back seat to. Like I mean, here's the thing, like the match we're going to talk about, this headlined this Budokan show, not the Triple Crown title match between I think it was Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy. You know, that's how much Baba thought of this program between Jumbo and Masada that he made it the main event, not the title match for the top belt in his company, which, you know, it's just telling, right? But, but also, like, I think that's, if you headline that, uh, if you don't headline with that, I think the Triple Crown match is probably really going to be disappointing for people. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's, I mean, we get to the kind of essence of the feud, isn't it? And it's, it's one of the kind of great stories of, you've got the battle for the ace of the promotion, and you've got the ace who's been on top, pretty much as like the, you know, the kind of big native star and he's on the downturn with the guy who's clearly on the, on the rise as well. And it's that kind of foreboding feeling that that kind of creates and the kind of emotions that, that happen around it. But, and it's, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, it's, there are so many sort of, I heard stories that he went to Jumbo about the idea for the for the four pillars, and it was something that Jumbo went, "Yeah, this is what we could do." But um, yeah, it's a it's a phenomenal feud, and like you say, how could you have any other match like following this? You'd have to headline with it, and also it's a it would have been the ultimate test of it would have been the confirmation for him that Masawa is the guy to go with, and he is a draw if he's able to get this kind of reaction in a sold out Budokan. Yeah. So, and before we get to the match itself, so we got to talk about a key match 
in the Super Generation Army versus Surigun feud. And this happens on May 26th, 1990 at Korokan Hall, where the team of Masawa, Kerakabashi, and Akira Tawai take on Jumbo Suruta, Masafuchi, and the Great Kabuki. And JP, it's during this match, Jumbo basically bullies and beats up all three Super Generation Army members. But at one point, you know, Masawa has had enough of this shit and just levels Jumbo off of the apron with his elbow mm-hmm. strike to Jumbo's face. And it has to be said that the Jumbo selling of this elbow was tremendous. I mean, he looked like he was knocked out cold by it to the point where no one was paying attention to what was going on in the ring while Jumbo was lying on the floor. Like, everyone was like, is he okay? Oh my God, did, did Masawa really, you know, like, you know, knock him out or something like that. And and this elbow, this this lone elbow strike has two effects, uh, you know, that, that resonate, you know, into the future. One, it sparks the hatred of Jumbo for Misawa that leads to the match we're going to talk about today. And number two, it starts the establishment of this elbow as one of the, you know, Misawa's most dangerous weapons and one of the most deadliest, you know, strikes in all of, you know, all Japan for wrestling, which is, you know, considering like we're talking about Kawada's kicks, we're talking about Kobashi and Stan Hansen's lariats, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, the, the Johnny Ace's Ace Crusher. Well, we're not talking about Johnny Ace's Ace Crusher, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I but, you know, like this is a legendary move to the point where like someone like, you know, Chris Hero basically adopts it and it's his finisher and it's it's directly lifted from Mitsuhara Misawa. Mm. It is, isn't it? And it's, it is the thing that's it's it's this elbow that becomes the thing that kind of makes him. It sounds really silly to say this, just like a strike of an elbow, but it kind of makes him. Dis, it's it's almost like the separation away from the move set he would have had with Tiger Mask Two as well. It's the kind of harder. It adds like the harder edge to Misawa for it, and like you say, the the selling of it when I when I've seen that is just absolutely tremendous on Jumbo's part, and it just like say in that. It's funny to say that in this day and age when we think of how convoluted booking can get and you see such a simple thing um, as an elbow strike leading to someone going down and that is part of your build and the kind of obviously the, the kind of pull apart that happens as a result of that, the way that it kind of explodes really into this. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, as you're saying, like, you know, as soon as Jumbo recovers, he immediately just goes after Masawa. Like, he mounts him. He's trying to beat the shit out of him. And it's they have to do a pull apart. It's it's generating all this tremendous heat. So, like, you can imagine everyone in, in Cork and Hall at that show is like, oh, my God, I have to see these two fight in a singles match. And so that brings us to, you know, June 8th at the Budokan Hall. Um, and there's a very famous apocryphal story. I don't know how true this is. But mm. it, it, it basically, it, it details, like, Giant Baba's booking decision. So it's said that, you know, Baba up to this day was deciding who's going to go over. Jumbo? Misawa? But at the Budokan, like, the day of the show, he decides that Misawa was going to go over. Um, because he was amazed at the chance of Misawa before the show. He was amazed at, like, the response Masao was getting during the tour leading up to this show. And, like, in between, apparently during lulls between each match on this show, JP, like, people were, were buzzing about him or chanting his name. And, like, apparently his merchandise was selling incredibly well. Like, Baba went out to the merchandise table to see how well, you know, people's merchandise was selling. He's like, oh, all Masao's shit is gone. Oh, my God. Like, okay. So from there, you know, he sends a messenger to Jumbo's locker room saying Masao is going over and then Jumbo sends the messenger back asking uh, double count out count out DQ what's the finish and then Baba says no 
clean finish, you're putting him over. And that that's the great thing about Giant Baba, and I think one of the keys to the success of All Japan was that Baba's word was final. No one fucked with Giant Baba. Like, like most of the people that worked for him respected him, but also they, you know, they understood that his word is final. Like, if you don't like his booking decision, you can not come back to work for him. Yeah, exactly. And you need that, don't you? You need that kind of, almost in a sense, that that person who is not afraid enough to kind of say that. And it's, it's funny, you think of a lot of wrestlers who would have really lost the plot a bit about being asked to do that kind of on the fly. And I can imagine he would have been possibly a bit pissed off behind the scenes. But I also like to think he's smart enough to realise where this is going and that in the wake of Tenru leading, that it's like, okay, this is like quite a, a shift from what we would normally do but maybe that's the thing that kind of jolts th- jolts things up. And so, and, you know, between that and the rematch as well, like, you know, Jumbo's almost, you know, he's, he's, he's telling that story because, to be honest, how many people would have expected Misawa to, to win that night? Oh, probably no one. I mean, I think there's yeah. genuine shock. We'll get to it when we get to, you know, the, the end of the match. But I do think there's, like, genuine shock and surprise that that he wins the match mm. um but yeah we'll, we'll get to that but you know let, let's start the video we're gonna hit the play button and 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 already you know you know before anything happens jp the misawa chants are already have already started mm. misawa yeah. misawa misawa and then we start soon after we hear the strains of spartan x misawa's theme and the chants are now in unison with this legendary theme song uh he's accompanied to the ring by toshaki kawada and Kenokabashi. basically they're his security because they have to keep these rabid fans from attacking mr Masawa as he's making his way from the dressing room to the <laughs> to the to the yeah. ring <laughs> oh absolutely they're they're tearing into it and and bless him he he completely no sells all of the fans doesn't he when he's going through have you ever seen so sorry have you ever seen have you ever seen some of these like you know especially in all japan you seen like where people are being accompanied to the ring and on all the seconds all the young boys like have to like Mm. stop the fans from touching the wrestlers like you know like i've seen like people like marafuji in his younger days just push people back like they don't give a fuck they just get the fuck away from our guy get away get away like and i've seen like I don't know, like probably Akiyama's done it too. I'm, I'm sure, you know, like yeah. Kenta's just push fans back. Like they don't care. Like you're not messing with our guy on his way to the entrance. You're not stopping him. We got to get this match started. But, you know, out, come, out next is Jumbo Sarita out to his theme song, J, simply titled J. And, you know, in Jumbo's corner, we see his top lieutenant, the great Masafuchi. And, and the referee for this match is the legendary and and incredible Kyoi Wada, my favorite ref of all time, even though he's kind of like lost the plot a little in the last two years in his old age, but he's just my favorite ref of all time because he's so fucking amazing. And it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, you can see why in this match, JP. Oh, you can. Um, it made me think of at times in some ways, uh, this is, I, I know you're not a big football fan necessarily, but in football, it's always kind of thought if you don't really notice the referee, then they're doing an excellent job. And I think with this, that everything kind of works so smooth. So even though he's kind of taking parts, particularly at points when Jumbo's getting annoyed and he'll shout at the referee, I think there's a point when uh, when Misawa slaps him and he sort of looks at the referee horrified. And then there's there's points where he gets involved, 
but in some ways he's just he's just like a part of the story isn't he and he plays his role so well but he doesn't take anything away from the wrestlers you know he's like that that perfect referee who does the thing of enforcing the rules but also doesn't distract your attention well he's like the anti-red shoes you know yeah yeah which even in and of itself because of the red shoes he's noticeable but then obviously you get all the kind of you know when he's play acting at ringside whereas here it's you know everything is deadly deadly serious yes uh, so i have to ask you jp your opinions on on spartan x and jay as theme songs i've heard a good bit of jay over the last um like sort of when i've done the research for this match because i watched the match against hansen the two matches against tenru um the rematch i like it but spartan x just sticks in your head once you've heard it for long enough as well. Um, yeah, a couple of absolute great themes, like proper, in some way, like you hear them and you've become very nostalgic and it reminds you of a sort of particular place from when you first kind of hear these themes that, you know, felt so different from other stuff that I was watching at the time. Could, could you see yourself dancing to this during your rave days in, uh, in your baggy jeans and uh, your, your uh, well, neon uh, glow, glow sticks uh, necklaces and stuff? You'd you'd need some chemical assistance, I suppose, to probably get into it. Um, I'd give it a go. Like if they played this in a in a nightclub, I'd be like, yeah, right, I'll start dancing to it. I might be the only one, but I'd be doing that, and I'd have to somehow try and fit in a couple of elbow smashes against I don't know a table or something like that. In the meantime, maybe maybe you have to go to like uh, the, the, you know, the hacienda in Manchester and uh, you know oh. and, uh, and and maybe make a jungle version of this song, this song. Well, that was open in 1990 at the Hacienda. So in some ways they could have done that. He was quite experimental, wasn't he, Tony Wilson? So um, he would have, uh, I could see him doing some sort of remix, getting you order to uh, sample Spartan X in a song. I think I, I could have seen him doing that. Well, wasn't Peter Hook a DJ at the Hacienda? Yeah, he was. Um, he could remix that, put a, put a bit more bass on that thing. Yeah, exactly. Him and him and Bernard Sumner, they can they can crack on with that, can't they? Well, not anymore because they hate each other. But anyways, <laughs> always the match. way. Back to the <laughs> match. Uh, uh, so at the beginning, Jumbo offers a handshake to Masawa, but Masawa casually blows him off, which plays into the larger story of their overall feud. So I thought that was a really nice detail that they had here. Um, Jumbo dominates the opening minutes of this match with his power using a shoulder tackle and body slam to send Masawa into the mat. Uh, Masawa avoids uh, Jumbo's jumping knee and hits Jumbo with a drop kick, but uh, Jumbo immediately just comes back with a boot straight to Masawa's chin. And right off the bat, they're just laying the groundwork, really establishing that this is going to be a very high impact match. Um, and like just kind of like the, the animosity between these two right away. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like you said, um, it's when Miss Hour sort of blows off the handshake and you realise, and, and also as well, you can tell that Jumbo's coming to this match cocky, which might well have belied what he was really feeling, but he plays it as like, I'm cocky. I've got this kind of big strength advantage. I like the dropkick big boot sequence as well. He does a great big boot. And I often, I, I did wonder whether Kevin Nash took uh some ideas for how to deliver a big boot from how Jumbo does here. But like you say, really good open start. And it sets up the idea of the, you know, the youth and speeds versus the kind of experience and size. Jiffy, I know you're a big Kevin Nash man, but let's be honest here. If Kevin Nash tried to get the height 
of his leg <laughs> that Jumbo did. He he would tear his quad in like seven different places again. Oh, absolutely, he would do. But it'd be one great big boot. You'd be left with this like brilliant big boot he does, and then he's just not able to wrestle again afterwards. No. Uh, Jumbo uh, continues the assault on Masao with a vicious clothesline and an uppercut reminiscent of his trainer, Dory Funk Jr. And and it's I'm watching these these Jumbo matches, and I like I, I look at the influence that like that you see from Dory Funk Jr. But also Terry Funk in the way like some of his punches, like Jumbo's punches to someone's face when he just doesn't give a fuck and he just like wants to punch somebody. They're very much like a Terry Funk punch. Have you noticed that? I have. Um, it was one of the things I was I was thinking about. And it was like he's a great NWA worker, isn't he? Is what he, and he did obviously spend a lot of time with the Funks in Amarillo and he's really learned from it and in some ways he's it's kind of the great thing about Jumbo, isn't it? Is he's able, he's had so much kind of good brawling experience with some great brawlers from you know the seventies and eighties, and he's able to sort of still tie that in with his Olympian style as well. And these are things that kind of get lost because he doesn't, he's not out of place with Masawa's offense, and he wouldn't be out of place with you know the offense of a Terry Funk if they were going to have just like a wild brawl as well. Well, if you think about like you know when he's starting out. Like he's, he's trained by the Funks in, in, in mm. Texas, and then he works in the United States for a while, particularly in the Amarillo like uh, territory with the, for the Funks. And then he comes back to Japan, and then he's working with the Funks, uh, with them and against them. Um, he's working Stan Hansen. He's working Bruiser Brody. He's working Abdul the Butcher. So, like, obviously, these are all things that, you know, like, he's absorbing through working with these these legendary mm. figures, especially like a lot of these guys are really great brawlers. And he, he doesn't necessarily become a brawler himself. I would never say he's a brawler type wrestler. I think like Minoru Suzuki, oddly enough, is a more of a brawler style wrestler than Jumbo Saruda, even though he doesn't have that kind of background with the kind of people that, that Jumbo has, but, but Jumbo knows his strength is that he's an awesome wrestler. And so like he mixes the brawling with the wrestling in, in a perfect blend, in my opinion. Oh Yeah. Absolutely. And because of that, when you have the transitional sequences and you've, you've got the ebb and flow and it's Masao on top and then you've got Kabashi on top as well, he's able to vary up what that is. So there'll be a strike exchange and then there'll, there'll be the battle for a suplex. And then he kind of, he will do things as well. We'll talk about it when he sort of throws a drop kick into the mix. And he has got this kind of varied offense as well. And he looks like, especially as it goes kind of later on through the match, I like the ragged nature of his of his offense as well, that kind of wildness. And, you know, you talk about he's working with the great brawlers of the time. I think that's one of the things he managed to kind of, he picked up in that. And he and he just subtly brings it in rather than bringing in, it's being too overt with it because he's still sort of staying true to himself as a former Olympian that he should be utilizing wrestling first and foremost. Uh, from here, uh, Misawa avoids Jumbo's deadly backdrop suplex and uses the momentum to get a pin attempt on him. And this is a recurring strategy uh, throughout this match from both, you know, Masawa and Jumbo, but more, more so Masawa. Like, he's trying to use the momentum of, you know, Jumbo's moves, of, like, Jumbo's inertia in some of the bigger moves he does, like the backdrop suplex, closed lines, things like that, German suplexes, against, you know, against him. And this is kind of where, like, his junior heavyweight style kind of comes into play. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And And it's... I think the idea as well is that like Jumbo's comfortable being able to do these moves and be dominant. 
but he's up against someone who has such a sort of defined advantage with him over him in terms of you know him being a, a junior wrestler like, a, not that long ago and still having that kind of flashy move set that he's able to kind of reverse and like you say it's the constant theme isn't it it's about how the, the kind of experience of knowing when to use the momentum of your opponent against them yeah, from here, uh, Masawa sends Jumbo to the outside with a sliding dropkick and follows up with his signature flip over the top rope onto the apron. And from here, he just floors Jumbo with a dropkick that sends you know Jumbo <laughs> crashing over the into the guardrails. And then Masawa follows him out onto the floor and he, and he hits him with that vicious elbow smash. And this sends Jumbo over the guardrails right in front of the commentator, commentator's table where Giant Baba is sitting. And I got to imagine Giant Baba is just like being like completely amused by all of this oh i'm like he must have just been grinning like a cheshire cat inside really about this particularly and it's a great like i say it's a it's a great sequence we're sort of so familiar with him doing the flip over but it's and it's the other thing about when misawa does dynamic offense how dynamic it is because and and how good a job jumbo does selling it going right into the guardrail and then when he hits him in the elbow and he sort of flies over as well, again, you know, proving how dangerous the elbow is. And I can imagine he was sat there just thinking, Christ, we're, we're going to pull this off, lads. And, he, he, you know, he must have been resisting every urge. And, um, yeah, it's always a it's a highlight of me. It's, it's kind of hearing Baba on commentary every once in a while because the tone of his voice is so different from anyone else because he sounds like he should be a wizard in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Which one? Is he Gandalf? I was, I was trying to think, yeah, like the proper, you shall not part. Like he's very much kind of doing that. And like you said earlier on, like I, I can remember like hearing it and then you're hearing him say tiger mask and then kind of moving on very quickly. Um, yeah. Baba on commentaries. It's, it, it's nice. He's not like he's an overbearing commentator, is it? He's not okay. Vince McMahon. Everyone, you've heard it here first. Giant Baba is the Ian McKellen of uh, wrestling commentators. Yep. Hey, that's that's high praise. High praise. Is I'm a big Ian McKellen fan. I think he's he has a great voice <laughs> as well as an actor. Um, from here, Jumbo tries to get back into the ring, but Masawa continues with the elbow shots, knocking Jumbo off the apron again, and then he follows up with a plancha over the top rope again. You know, just another example of Masawa incorporating this high flying style that he used as Tiger Mask too, and that he would use like throughout the, you know, even the later stages of his career into, like, the late 90s. Um, less so, I think, like, at, at this point, I think he becomes more of, a, like, an impact wrestler, like, just mm. big bombs and, and big strikes. But he never gets rid of, like, all of his, you know, flying moves. He keeps quite a few of them still in his later years. Which is good, isn't it? Because in some ways, that's the story of the character, isn't it? His excursion to Mexico and the things he would have learned and the things he would have learned as part of his... Um, role as tiger mask too and then being able to kind of just pull off those high impact moves when they matter the most while still being able to kind of and then kind of incorporating the, the very much the famous striking style that that we think of him today uh jumbo finally gets back in 
and is now really weary of Masawa and, and spends a couple of minutes just keeping his distance while getting his bearings back, just the sign of a great veteran. Uh, Masawa go, again goes back to his elbow shots, and there's this great moment, JP, where you see Masafuchi on the floor just admonishing Kyoigwata about the possible illegality of these elbows, which I just thought was a great moment. If you it, like, It's a great moment because if you don't notice it, it doesn't detract from the match, but if you see it, I just think it just kind of enhances it in, in just that little bit, you know? Oh, yeah, I think it, it really does. And it's the kind of thing you notice on those kind of second, third viewings. And I don't know, you know, I remember seeing that on, on the second viewing um, of that. And it's and it's great. But it's also there's the points when you can hear a Kawada or, or a Kabashi like, you know, when he's in the Boston Crab and he can just hear them yell Miss Hour in order to kind of wake him up to do that. And the role of the role of the seconds being there as well, which you know, it, it's great. And again, it adds to the drama. Yeah, from here, they actually, you know, they slow the pace down at this point. They're trading holds back and forth and including a sequence of reversals of like, I don't know what this move is called where they, you know, they hold each other's arms behind their opponent's back. I was trying to think for that. It's like a reverse test of strength. <laughs> where one of yeah, the people I, I stood guess. with their hands behind their back. If yeah, that makes like, it, and then, but you're still able to turn it round though. Yeah, yeah, it just like it, it's it's. I don't know exactly what this move is called. I it's hard to describe. It's so simple, but it's hard to describe. But anyways, that's what they do for a good portion of this of this part of the match. Uh, finally, Masawa gets the better of that particular sequence, doing a backwards drop kick to Jumbo. Uh, Masawa gets a control segment with a standing hammerlock on Jumbo Sarita. There's a collar and elbow lockup that sees Masawa slap Jumbo in the face instead of giving a clean break. And this is a mistake of sorts on Masao's part because this really pisses Jumbo off. If he wasn't pissed off before this this point, JP, he is now pissed off at this punk for doing this. Oh, it's great, isn't it? And it's the it's the lack of because it's fitting it fits so well up against the kind of bully character that he has as well. Of someone sort of slapping him round the face going, I'm not gonna take that. And then how pissed off he gets. But He's quite canny as well because he also it's not like he kind of completely loses his shit and just starts kind of laying into him, isn't it? It's the it's the idea about, you know, it's almost like Masawa's trying to destabilize um, Jumbo. He's trying to wind him up. He's doing these things to kind of get him angry and and show that he's not and show that he's not scared of him. I, I do think there's a psychological element in in Masawa's strategy against Jumbo, like, you know, he's got a, he, this is a guy who's been wrestling for like 30 years and has been the top guy in the company. It's not just going to be, it's not just going to be like, you know, physically wearing him down. He has to psychologically make, wear him down to the point where, you know, Jumbo's going to mistake that Masawa's going to capitalize on. I think that's really kind of like what I take away from watching this match, like a couple of times. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it plays on the arrogance of Jumbo, doesn't it? as the ace that this uh, is yes sorry go ahead no 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 carry on so uh from this point jumbo regains control with a jumping knee that connects this time on Masao. and and jp like who has a better jumping knee than jumbo Sirda? the answer oh, is no nobody one. no one fuck nah. triple h fuck kenny omega jumbo's jumping knee is better than all of theirs and it looks so believable as well it, it, it's just, it works. Oh, it, it's just, it's lovely the way he does it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? A jumping knee, which in 
today's day and age would be something that wouldn't mean too much here. It's just like it's filled with complete significance. No, no knee slapping here, JP. No knee slapping. Oh, here. no. Jumbo doesn't do that shit, does he? He's not slapping that thigh for no one. No, no, not not at all. Uh, he's also not like pretending that that wrestling is a video game, but that's neither yeah. here, here or there. Uh, uh, from here, Jumbo applies the abdominal stretch, which Masao reverses, and then Jumbo reverses that by hip tossing Masao over the top rope onto the floor. Uh, Masao comes back into the ring, and Jumbo hits a beautiful double underhook suplex, and again, like showing off, like just what an incredible technical wrestler that he is. Uh, he then slaps on a sleeper hold. And this is one of my favorite Kiyoi Wada spots. Wada just immediately jumps in there to make sure it's not an illegal check chokehold. He's like, check, he's putting his fingers under the Jumbo's arm, making sure it's not under the chin. It's just, you know, like, you don't notice Wada until you have to notice Wada. And this is a point where you have to notice that there's a, a, a competent referee making sure that nothing illegal is happening during this part of the match. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's... You know, he does. It's, 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 you know, it's a spot that it didn't last for a particular long amount of time. But you can just see him going in and working his way round to kind of check the entirety of the hold as well. And it's, it's the kind of thing that keeps up the integrity of the match. If you're going to think of it like that, by making sure that for for this to work, all of the components need to be believable. And this is just an idea of this as well. And it's kind of you're kind of thinking, well, what? What should a referee be doing in those moments? Well, logically, he'd be checking to make sure that this is a legal move. He'd be a great MMA referee, wouldn't he? I was going to say, yeah. It's, a, it's an MMA mentality, which you wonder at times, is that a good mentality for, for sort of referees to take on board? I think oh. so. I, I think if, it, if you want realism in your wrestling product, then, you know, um, if, you're, if you're a company like, you know, the WB, no. If you're a company like, most American companies like WWE or AEW, like you probably don't necessarily want that. Um, I don't think New Japan necessarily wants that in in their product, but I think you know at this time, uh, you know it, it fit perfectly because that's what Jumbo was. Go- I mean, that's what Baba was going for. He was going for yeah. moving, uh, pivoting away, like from you know, like these really, you know, so he had he he booked a lot of outlandish characters in his company. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of gimmicks and stuff like that. And then he pivots towards, like, this kind of more traditional straight wrestling style. He still books a lot of, like, you know, gimmicky foreigners, like the Headhunters from Puerto Rico. He books Giant Kamala 2. Um, not the original one who just passed away. Rest in peace. But um, and, and, and characters like that. Like, he would bring in the Road Warriors, the Great Kabuki, you know, wrestlers like that into the 80s All Japan. But, you know, for the most part, the main event scene is all serious wrestlers. Like, like a lot of the stuff that are more, that's more gimmicky is like in the, in the mid card or, or the, the, the lower part of the card. And so I think, you know, having Kyo Iwata and other referees just kind of being more like treating it as a sport, it just makes the product better. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's what, it's what Bubba's going for. And it, it fits the aesthetic. If he was running a, a kind of an overtly silly promotion, then having that kind of referee probably wouldn't work. Um, but this is what he's going for. It, it's the way that the it's the way the entire matches are kind of produced as well. It's you know big fight feel and big fight feel. The idea of it is your big fights have the best referees. Yeah, so from here, Jumbo sends Masawa into the ropes, and then he lifts him into the air. And then as Masawa's coming down, he just drives him face first into the mat. Uh, he tries this again, but, you know, Masawa uses the momentum 
of the move to hit Jumbo with a drop kick in midair. So keeping with the theme of of using Jumbo's momentum against him, uh, Masawa follows up with a top rope drop kick again. Uh, back to another theme uh, that we talked about. He really loves using his junior heavyweight repertoire during um, you know this early part of his unmasked career. Yeah, yeah, it really it, it's it is, isn't it? It's the like we were saying earlier on. It's the it's the kind of transitions, but within the narrative it's the transition of his career but within the narrative of the match as well it's the idea that this is the stuff that jumbo wouldn't normally have to prepare for in a triple crown or a big sort of budokan main event so the idea of it kind of taking him by surprise but also showing as well a glimpse of what the future of all japan will be like and perhaps what the style of wrestling will be like as well so there's the, the kind of the, the glimpses of, of that kind of much more like some more flashy elements that that would go in that the kind of stuff that Jumbo wouldn't do, but it wouldn't fit Jumbo to ever do that. So, you know, we spoke about it's being a bridge and in many ways it's like a kind of bridge of styles as well. Well, I mean, Jumbo acts as a great base for, for Basawa's high flying stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And his and his timing is so good. I, I got to think like, you know, he's, he, I'm trying to think who he would who he would have worked that had a high flying style in the '80s. I, I don't know if like the the mask the you know Mill Maskers or Don Carlos were were working him mm. that much in in the '80s. I have to go back and look at that. But you know, I'm not. It's not like you know. It's not like Masao's fucking Rey Mysterio or anything like that. Yeah. But yeah. still, like he has to catch this guy <laughs> jumping off the top rope. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that Great Kabuki never or Ricky Choshu never jumped off the top rope while Jumbo was on the floor and he had to catch either of those guys. So it's 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 a testament to like how he's also willing to kind of adapt to this kind of more high risk, you know, style where he has to actually, you know, he's running as great a risk as Masawa is jumping off the top rope because he has to catch this guy. Yeah. And he's, I don't know how he kind of feels with it as well, but it, it again works because he does this, he does a great kind of baffled face jumbo at points where it just appears like what the hell is going on around me. I'm not normally in this kind of situation. And when there are these types of moves, you see him kind of stumble around like he's like a like he's proper David and Goliath stuff, except you just sort of blow on Goliath and he's sort of stumbling around like not knowing where not knowing where he is. Yeah, from here, uh, Misawa is firmly in control of the match. He's wearing Jumbo down with strikes and slams and and hits his version of the frog splash for a two count. Uh, Misawa goes for a cross body press, but you know Jumbo. He now uses the strategy of using momentum against his opponent. He catches Masawa and then drops him throat first into the top rope. And, and I got to think that's kind of deliberate. Like, you know, fuck you. This, I'm just going to, I'm tired of your shit here. I'm just going to you know, kind of you know, like decapitate you with the top rope. Oh, it's fucking horrible. You just think so many things could have gone wrong at that point. Especially when he was involved in a main event with Tenru where he knocked him out with a power bomb as well. It looks brutal. Um, and as a WCW fan, I was always a fan of Steve Austin's early finishes, the stun gun. Um, and this is just like a, a horrible version of that where he just sort of catches him, just drops him throat first. But it's it feels like such a big kind of moment in this match as well um, of the kind of ebb and flow of it. So it's it's horrible. You see it. And then there's a great shot, isn't there, where the camera overhead is looking down on um Miss Hour as he's sort of stunned, feeling up around his neck. Yeah, I think it, it, you get, one thing you got to 
gotta admire is like there's some really great camera work because it's not oh, varying yeah. with the amount of cuts or anything like like because it's shot like a sport. That's the other thing. It's not shot like a TV show or entertainment yep. product. It's shot like a sport, and and this is something Japan has always been good about. I felt with the way they shoot wrestling matches is is that you know because obviously you know you know pro res is is very much you know treated like a sport, especially at this time. So you know we get great shots like this and the impact of moves and catching moves, and it's not always perfect, mind you, but it's better than a lot of the shit we see these days. Um, from here, uh, you know, uh, Jumbo follows up uh, that uh, throat drop into the top rope with a Terry Funk-like pile driver for a big mm. two. And again, like, you know, who who are his trainers, JP? Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk. And it's so evident in the way that, uh, you know, he does some of these moves. Oh, yeah. Going to say here, for you, the pile driver, the um, spinning toe hold. I think he does a variant on that as well at some point. Um not like a proper spinning toe, but certainly like a toe hold as well. Like you said earlier on, the kind of punches. It's great because it's it's high impact, but they're not overused as well, which is one of the great things I've found about watching Jumbo back is the way he spaces those big, those big high impact moves. So they mean more to the crowd. So the crowd will react. Uh, Jumbo then hits his uh, Thez press for a two. And I got to say, you know, I love Jumbo, but... Sometimes this says press that he does is really sloppy. It's not as good as like Steve Austin's. Oh no. He he's kind of too big for it. Really? In some ways. I get why he's going for it. But also as well, like you say, he's he's nearly forty. His knees have probably had, you know, not far off their kind of, you know, last legs themselves. So yeah, him doing it. Although I will say there's something about that kind of ragged offense in these big matches when people are worn down that I always kind of enjoy. It's like the rough edges on if I see a match that's too smooth. Um, sometimes I don't like it feels too much of like a kind of sheen on it. Whereas moments like this are where like, you know, where is that bit more rough around the edges? Like say when he, when he drops um, Miss Sour on his throat on the rope. Those are the things that I kind of, yeah, I like that about Jumbo. Uh, Jumbo continues dominating Masawa for a good several minutes here and, and leads him to go to the top rope to do something. Masawa tries to block him and hit a superplex, but, you know, Jumbo knocks him down with a straight punch to the face. I guess that's, you know, the Terry Funk-like thing there. Uh, mm. He's able to hit Masawa with an awesome-looking top rope version of his jumping knee for a close two. JP, this fucking move was awesome. Fucking great! Like you said earlier on, like those jumping knee, those jumping knees he does are great, and the crowd, like at that point, like this is the point where the crowd start to get really hyper as well. Oh yeah, I made a note. The crowd is really starting to get louder for these two mm. camps. Now we're seeing it, and like we're getting into pretty much the crescendo part of the match because like after this, a power bomb from Jumbo two count, Masao reverses a double underhook suplex into a backslide. For a two count, uh, Masala then falls up with an elbow to Jumbo's face, which it, which gives him some much needed distance and time away from Jumbo. So, like, just you know, the desperation now is in Masawa. Like, he's he's has to like just not not just go for the pin, but like he needs to separate himself away from Jumbo to to kind of like heal and and rest and get his second wind. Yeah, it's like you say in some ways when you present this like a sport and you produce kind of it is like an MMA context, isn't it? Uh, where 
he needs his strength is his kind of his speed and his agility and being able to move around. So you have to kind of create that distance as you would do in a real fight. Whereas Jumbo is the bigger man. He's going to want to keep him in close because that what's what works best for him. Yeah, from, from here, Jumbo has slid to the outside to recover. And Masawa is able to hit a basement dropkick on Jumbo while he's on the floor. And then he falls up with a high risk. And I mean high risk, top rope splash. This is something that you would see, you know, Tanahashi do in like big G1 finals or big IWGP heavyweight title matches. Like this is Masawa doing. Of course, Masawa is like, you know, still young at this point. But still, it's like, it's not something you would normally see. In, in all Japan at this time, and and I'm and the fans are going nuts for this move. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's great though when he does it, and like and it's yes, yeah, like we said earlier on, it's that idea of kind of merging these kind of much more spectacular high spots that they're going to be seeing a lot more of in as the nineties go on. Uh, back in the ring, and both men are are jockeying for position, but again, Masawa uses Jumbo's momentum against him to roll him into the ropes and then to an O'Connor roll for a very close two. And, and the fans, JP, the fans are going nuts now. They are just like on their feet, like jumping up from their seats, like sitting back down, jumping back in from their seats every time they think a, a finish is coming. And, and all of Budokan is so loud. It, it must be, for me, it was like, wow, this is such a stark contrast to the, the wrestling we've been seeing in 2020. Mm. Oh, yeah. It, it, and it's it's wonderful to see because it's kind of, the way the crowd get in this, it's like it's very raucous. Because I always think that there is, you know, we have the idea of what we think a, a Jap- of what we think a Japanese wrestling crowd are like. But here, it's there's a real wildness to that crowd. I mean, they're they're really losing it and shouting it. And it's not like, and it's not like throughout this, like Jumbo's the obvious heel or anything else. There is a lot of you can hear those Saruta old chants as well at points, um, and. But at the same time, it's they're so behind Masao as well. They really want him to win this. And it's great. And it's it's the thing that adds into the kind of folklore around the match. Masawa uh, hits a spinning heel kick to Jumbo's face and tries for a frog, fla- for a frog splash. But uh, Jumbo gets his knees up and immediately covers Masao for two. I don't know why, but like people getting hit in the face in all Japan just makes me laugh. Yeah, and there's a lot of it, Christ, when Kawada really starts getting on the scene then at, the, uh, at that point. Um, but yeah, I liked the like I liked how Jumbo plays possum for the the, the 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 second frog splash as well. And then it like and again within that kind of narrative logic of the match, like when he goes for the um, for that kind of Boston crab as well, the idea that that's the thing that would ground that type of offense from him. Uh, there's a big Masawa chant. Like, oh yeah! Now just consistently going on amongst the people in in Budokan Hall, uh, Misawa, Misawa. It's not, it, you know the great thing about Misawa's name is that it's so easy to chant. It's perfect, isn't it? I mean, in some ways, they've you've got that though also with uh, Kawada, and you've got that with Kobashi as well, isn't it? It's it's they've set themselves up well phonetically for some really high powered chants. Oh yeah, like like Hanson's kind of the uh, the odd man out. Hanson. Oh. Because they, they, you yeah. need like three syllables. He's only got two. Like, exactly. like Jumbo's name. Jumbo, oh, like they, they add an extra O for yeah. for the phonetic effect. But Hanson is kind of hard to do. Um, yeah, Johnny Ace doesn't really lend itself either to uh, chants. 
Well, that's okay. He is never a huge star in, in all Japan for wrestling. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be eating my rewards though. JP, if someone picks a fucking, you know, global energetic tough tag match with Kobashi and Johnny Ace and the Patriot in it, that I have to review and that I have to maybe eat my words and say, yeah, you know, Johnny Ace wasn't bad in all Japan. But anyways, we're not here to talk about <laughs> Johnny Ace. I don't want to get bogged down by Johnny Ace talk. Anyways, where, where am I here? Uh, vicious body slam into a vicious Boston crab from Jumbo onto Masawa, but Masawa is thankfully too close to the ropes. Jumbo Lariat, big two count. And I love, like, we talk about, you know, Stan Hansen's Lariat. I fucking love Jumbo Sabrina's Lariat, JP. It's a thing oh, of beauty. It is. It's great. And it's not, it's quite controlled, isn't it? Compared to, like, Hansen, where it's just like, I'm blind and I'm going to take your head off and you just got to hope for the best um, on these things. But it's such a good impact move from him as well. And it's, he kind of, you know, it's the way he kind of mixes up his offense, doesn't he? And um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great lariat in a time of very fine lariats in the best company in the world for lariats. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Jumbo goes for the backdrop suplex, but you know, Masawa is positioned really close to the, the corner. So he's able to kick off of the top turnbuckle and mm. again, uses the men, the momentum of this move to escape what would surely be the end of the match for him if Jumbo was able to hit it. Uh, there's a German suplex with a bridge from Masawa, but you know, Jumbo barely kicks out at 2.9, not two, 2.9 JP. Like it's really fucking close. Oh, it is. And they lose their shit. And it's a lovely German as well, which I don't know if you notice it throughout this match. There's not, one of the things we always think of all Japan is the kind of serious amount of head and neck trauma. But in this match, in some ways, there isn't the kind of, there isn't any of those kind of really horrific kind of on the, on the proper kind of neck drop kind of moments throughout this. And it's such a love, it's, it's a lovely German for it as well. And it's the fact that, the angle you see it from the camera, it's like he's, he's facing the camera jum, jumbo when he takes it back. So you can kind of just see his face that he pulls a kind of like, oh shit face as he's going backwards and it's for the two point and for the 2.9. It's, it's great. Uh, jumbo reverses a tiger driver attempt into a bridge pin for only a two count here. Uh, jumbo sends Masawa into the corner where Masawa rebounds into a body press attempt. But Jumbo answers with a Masawa like elbow of his own to the top of Masawa's head. But, but, JP, he makes a crucial mistake because this mm. this elbow strike to Masawa's head hurts his elbow as much as, like, I'm sure the shot to Masawa's head did to Masawa. Yeah, it was. It's a great moment um, because it's 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 so good in terms of how he hits him, and it's just the way he crumbles over to the other side of the ring and he just starts shaking, um, shaking his um, his elbow at that point. And it's yeah, it's this idea. Um, that I kind of like throughout this match where Jumbo has, like obviously each wrestler has their strengths and their weaknesses, but it's very kind of apparent that Masawa's weaknesses he's working on and he's going to get better and he's going to get a lot better over time. Whereas for some of these things, I think for Jumbo, there's a realization that that's a weakness and that he's not going to be able to remedy it because he's heading towards the kind of, the end he's closer to the end of his career than he is is to the beginning and he's kind of turned over from that so the idea of him holding his elbow because he hasn't got an elbow like miss hours um is 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 a great little moment i mean i my theory you know jp is that you know jumbo's elbow is obviously not as calcified or calloused 
as as Masawa's. Obviously, Masawa's been tra- training it Muay Thai style, hitting the punching bag or or a, a, a stone pillar with his elbow to like really get it hard. And and so yeah, like a Van Tam route, like a Van Dam routine, and say kickboxer. Exactly, exactly. Like he's he's elbow boxing, you know. Yeah. With, that's what Masawa's doing, but like Jumbo's not doing this. So this hurts him as much as it does Masawa. And and Jumbo's selling of just you know this part of this match. This elbow, like his elbow hurting, it's incredible. Like, I don't think people give, I don't know, like, how many people talk about Jumbo and, like, how awesome he is at selling. Like, I think he might be one of the, like, the top three sellers in the history of all of professional wrestling. Well, it's, do you know why? It's because when he, when, because he doesn't oversell and he has the great thing of absorbing punishment but not wanting to show it. Whereas towards the end of this, he's becoming ragged. And so it's hitting him now. It's, it's having that kind of, it's having that real impact. And he spaces out when he should be feeling like that, when he's kind of on the ropes. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. It's, it, in some ways, it's, it, because we don't have the overkill of him selling, it just gives whatever selling, the, the real kind of overselling that he does has so much more significance to it. Like you mentioned earlier on in the um, in the six man tag with the elbow, that's so important. I mean that the whole start of this, in some ways, is entirely dependent on a sell job from Jumbo Saruta. That kind of gives the momentum for this match, and then where it goes from there. So, I mean, his selling is absolutely integral to it. Uh, from here, like he has another chance to uh, sell something because Jumbo tries for a drop kick. While Masawa is on the ropes, but Masawa avoids it and Jumbo crotches himself into the ropes. Poor Jumbo. He he does a really good sell job here. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's actually selling or it's actually like this really hurt him. I think he hurt his knackers. In fairness, but he does it so well. It's like a really fun because he jumps on and he kind of does a bit of a wild swing and then goes back in, and there's that kind of impact and it's. It's like you've been saying about this as well. And um, and obviously in the, the fantastic sort of Joseph Moncillo series, and he talks a lot about momentum of that. And this is like the kind of perfect moment, isn't it? To illustrate Misawa's understanding of how to use the opponent's momentum against them. Oh, definitely. I, and, and like, you know, if you want, you know, like we're, we're, we're getting to the close of this match, JP. I, maybe I'm going to let you take it out. But like, you know, definitely, you know, Joseph Monticelio, the, the, the episode zero guest does does a wonderful series about this match uh, that people should go, you know, watch after they listen to this podcast. But but when we get to the finish, JP, do you have notes for the finish of this match? I did. Um, so, like, one of the things um, that I really like is so they kind of it's the. It's what is it? Jumbo tries to go for the suplex, and then uh, basically um, Misawa goes behind, kind of reversal, and it's almost like Jumbo tries something that really shouldn't be in his wheelhouse when he tries to sort of turn into uh, turn it in, into reversal into the pin attempt. But it also plays into the whole momentum because he rolls over, gets the two, but also at the same time, it's like Misawa pushes, uses the weight of. Um, jumbo against him to roll over and kind of get the three and it's a kind of it's a quick sequence but it also plays into the overall theme as we've kind of said so many times during this of that kind of speed and dynamism experience that he has and it and it takes jumbo by surprise and my christ the pop 
after that. Just people completely losing it. And it's, you know, it's a flash pin, but it feels like such a big moment there. And you can see them behind that that people are absolutely losing it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great moment. So, so Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer was was at this show, and and he's noted you know several times like talking about this match. Like afterwards, people were crying in the in the in in the audience, and like there was like this feeling of elation. You know, I I've, the, the the closest thing I maybe I've experienced to that was maybe you know this past January when Naito beat Okada for for the IWGB Heavyweight title at the second night of mm-hmm. Wrestle Kingdom this year. And people were just like random people just high-fying each other because like, they finally saw the culmination of something they've wanted to see for a long time. And I, I get the feeling this is maybe similar to put it into context for like what it must have been like back in, you know, June on June 8th in 1990 at the Budokan, like Masala pinned Jumbo Saruta. And so you saw something that people had wanted to see, which was kind of, like the ascent of something fresh, like people who are longtime All Japan fans, they they want to see Jumbo Saruta be you know a star in their company, but they realize, like I think all wrestling fans realize, at some point something gets just becomes too stale. Like you need to freshen things up in the product, and they saw this win from Misawa as being that start. We're going to enter a new phase, and it's being led by this guy who's such an incredible wrestler in his own right. Oh. Absolutely. Uh, com- completely um, agree with that, because this is it's like you're 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 it's not in a sense like a tease. You have this big moment. It's great. You realize you're not at the kind of top of the story, but you know where this is going. And it's that one direction and you know who is going to be the ace that's going to supplant him. And it doesn't write off Jumbo. It adds to Jumbo and particularly in the rematch, which is great, where. Jumbo's really desperate, but he's also very noticeable not wanting to kind of make the same mistakes that he did last time, which is obviously the the kind of whole all Japan style, isn't it? And building upon these moves and building upon these moments. But it's it's it would have given a lot of hope, I imagine, to fans that things were going to be kind of changing. And it was a new domestic um, face which would have been so important and he would have been fresh. And I think, you know, Jumbo understood that and he understood what his role was. And like, if you think of it, if you take the kind of elements of this match, it's very, very easy that you could end up like, if you just look at the booking of this, you can end up with Billy Kidman versus Hulk Hogan. Couldn't you? Where you're not putting someone over, you're just dominating them and they have the kind of fluke pin and there's no way like, and Jumbo which I know it sounds really silly when you think of the kind of story of 1990, you think how would a Hogan have taken that? How would a big star in WWF would have taken it at that time? There's no chance they would have done that and, and had the finish changed around. Whereas here, um, Jumbo does it. He does it the right way. He doesn't lose anything, obviously. You've got the absolute mad hype then for the rematch. And Misawa is built up as a star and he's on that level. And then it would have been a case where you're looking at the other people there who are in the ring as well and how they're going to play a part in this. It, it would have been a tremendously exciting time. Cause like you say, it would have been the staleness of, you know, having these kind of, you know, a Gordy versus Hanson match for a triple crown. I think ultimately the fans, like a lot of fans do, they like that idea of the kind of hometown heroes, don't they? 
and it's it plays into that kind of universal sports fandom and and very much Bubba at that point he's saying up he's setting up saying right we've got a new generation coming through and by the way they're class. Oh, and like I think you know the post match is just as important <laughs> because this is like something that you see like replayed again and again is that immediately after you know Masao pins Jumbo Kawada and Kobashi Kobashi immediately get into the ring to celebrate with Masawa and lift him onto their shoulders. And this is like, you know, this is an image that is ingrained in, in wrestling history as like the start basically of these guys. This is their, their era is starting like the four pillars. And, and this includes Tawe, which I think is, is really interesting. Like I'm yeah. watching this, this, this post-match and, you know, Kobashi and Kawada hold Masawa on their shoulders. And we see a Kira Tawe as part of this, the scene of congratulating Masao, but he seems like an outsider. Like he's just kind of patting Masao on the back. And while this trio is physically connected to each other, you know, with this, like them hoisting Masao onto their shoulders. And I'm not sure if this is deliberate or not. I don't know if this is foreshadowing, but it seems like, you know, like Tawe is kind of like indicating, indicating that he's eventually going to defect away from the super generation army because he knows he's fucked. Because, like, okay, Masawa's number one, Kawada's yeah. two, Kobashi is three, and then I'm four, and then Kikuchi's five, but I don't want to be four. I at least want to be number two. I'm not going to be number two with fucking Kawada there, because Kawada's, a, you know, the, the, the guy everyone knows is, you know, the guy after Masawa, and then Kobashi's going to be right after, you know, Kawada if not surpass him later on in, in the years. But Tawe knows, like, I'm fucked. I, I, can't, I can't be in this group anymore. Wait, look, look over there. There's Jumbo. Who's he got on his team? Bunch of old dudes. Maybe he needs some fresh blood. So, like, later on, Akira Tawe brilliantly, either on his own part or, or probably on Jumbo, uh, Giant Baba's part, joins Saruta Gun to become, you know, Jumbo Saruta's tag team partner. And I talked about a match of theirs in the last episode, JP, but they form an awesome tag team. You know, Tawe and Jumbo is just just magic, and it does wonders for I think Tawe's career. Oh yeah, and because in some he'll he'll never receive the credit that the others do, but the role that he plays, in particularly as well, the feud he has with Kawada, and what that generally does for that kind of semi main for for raising them up, then the series of tags, then you get the Holy Demon Army, all of these these kind of factors and it works and it was funny when and again you i'm kind of looking out for these things now now with the benefit of hindsight looking back in time at it when you're watching that and you just see tawai come up and it's just a pat on the back and then he's kind of gone and like you say you can see kawada you can see kabashi who's just got like an enormous smile on his face as well throughout it and it's and i suppose as well they themselves inside as wrestlers would have known, right, we are going to be moving on to another stage of this. And it's not, even though Masao might well be the ace, we're going to be obviously part of these, all all of these storylines as well for the upcoming future. And I think in order to make Tawei stand out, it was the best move to get in with Jumbo. And like you said, it makes sense that why be the number four in one group when you're going to be the number two in, in the other and that the number one isn't going to be around forever. Oh yeah, and then like 
I mean, he he's eternally becomes at number two because, like you said, you mentioned the Holy Demon Army, which is the tag team of Kawada and Tawei. Obviously, Kawada is the number one in that group. But you know, the thing <laughs> is, is Tawei gets his gets his you know gets his taste of the Triple Crown eventually. Like he, mm-hmm. it's not like it's not like he gets left out. Like you know, Masao holds it, Kawada holds it, Kobashi holds it. You know, and Tawei holds the belt as well. So it's it or the three belts in this case. It it it, it, it does wonders. I don't think he would have gotten that taste necessarily if he was you know, if, if Baba kept him in the Super Generation army, if he was the number four guy. Like look at, you know, like Kikuchi. Kikuchi was never gonna get there necessarily because he's a junior heavyweight. So he's not gonna get a taste of the triple crown. But like I think also like Tawei moving over and we'll talk about this. I'm sure someone's going to pick at one of the, the, the amazing multi-man tag matches that the super generation versus mm-hmm. uh, guns produces that, that we're going to talk about Kikuchi. And I, of course I talked about a lot about Kikuchi in the last episode with Daniel Makabe, but you know, like there's, there's a lot of, you know, like benefits of like how, you know, giant Baba kind of moves these chess pieces onto, you know, like into making these teams and like creating these programs within, within the overall program. Like you say, Kawada versus Tawei and Misawa versus Jumbo. And then Masafuchi just being an asshole to everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's the things that, that you love about wrestling the most, isn't it? Where you've got this very interesting cast of characters and you can maneuver them about and, They've all got the kind of stories and it's the like the sheer depth of Kawada versus Misawa going back to their high school days and the rest of it. There's there's so many kind of extra layers and levels, which is why this stuff, you know, we're talking that this match happens, you know, we're, we're just over 30 years ago. Um, and it, you know, God, this holds up like this is something that you kind of think, you know, this is essential viewing. And it's also reminds you of the stuff that certainly I love most about wrestling and it's the idea of these characters being true to themselves. So even when they do bad things, you know why they're doing it. It makes sense for them to do it. You may not agree with them doing it necessarily. So you speak about Tawai, Tawai, it, it makes sense for him to do that. It makes sense for Kawada later on to, to kind of have his, um, his, his feud with Masawi. You know, all of these things are, are logical. Um, and in a world, in certainly a year that's completely devoid of really any logic to it, half an hour of sort of pure logical bliss watching this is just like a reminder of a of a of a much better time. Yeah, definitely. I'm. I mean, I don't want to be one of these people that says, "Oh, wrestling when I was younger was so much better." But you know, like you know, I like a lot of modern wrestling. I really do. Mm-hmm. But there, there is a there is definitely a pivot, even in like the companies that you know, say they are a serious wrestling product, there is a pivot towards becoming more entertainment based. You know, it has been this way for the last ten years in in, in all of wrestling and, and particularly in Japan, I think more than even America, because America has always been like that. Um but yeah, like it's it's just great to go back and watch these matches. And like you say, JP, they they hold up. Um my, my final thoughts on this match is like it's awesome match. I, I don't go as high as like some other people. I gave it a four and a half rating mm. um in my own personal rating system, which you know the top one is top number is five. But I, I think I do think like there is better matches that they have. But this is the, the historical match. This is the, the kickoff of Masawa's ascent to eventually becoming some you know, the ace himself supplanting Jumbo as the top guy in this company and just ushering in this the greatest era of in-ring professional wrestling, in my opinion, in, in the history of this whole wacky sport that we, we that we love so much. Oh, God, yeah. And if you think of it, and it's 
some ways it's like a Star Wars analogy, um, which is the idea that if the guy with the gun at the very start of Star Wars, if he'd shot the um, the escape pods that C-3PO and R2-D2 escaped from, they wouldn't have met Luke. Luke wouldn't have met Obi-Wan and so on and so forth. Here, if you think of the ramifications of you don't have this match and you don't have this moment, perhaps, you know, the version of history, do you get do you get the four pillars? Do you get the kind of influence of, of the style? You know, Jumbo would have had so much faith in going, oh, yeah, the direction these guys are going in from a wrestling perspective is where we need to go as well. And as you say, it is that kind of greatest period of main event wrestling that you're that you're going to see on that big stage. But without this match, you don't get four pillars, which then all the other people who have been so influenced from it, and I suppose the most obvious one would be someone like an Eddie Kingston. Do you even get an Eddie Kingston as a result of that? As a, you know, it's the influence of this. And it's so, it's so important for where wrestling goes worldwide. I mean, even outside of all Japan, you know, the influence of it to this day, it's, you know, you get old people like us banging on about how great this match from 30 years ago is. And it's and, you know, we say it for a reason. It's not done out of nostalgia. It's like I say, four and a half. I think the rematch is better because it's, it's so dramatic and it plays off so much stuff in this as well. And I'd watch both of them as a kind of companion piece to this. But um yeah, this is, I don't know whether you say it, this is like, it's one of the high points of wrestling. It is, definitely. And, and you know, to your point, it, you say, do we get someone like Eddie Kingston if we don't have the Four Pillars era in the 1990s? But I would say, do we get, you know, the last 10 years of New Japan Pro Wrestling yep. events if we don't have this? Because, like, I, I will tell you straight up, like, if you think that, you know, the foundation of the main event scene of New Japan Pro Wrestling with Tanahashi, Okada, Naito, um, Ibushi, Kenny Omega, you know, AJ Styles, even, like, if you think that comes from Strong Style, like, the Three Musketeers era, it, it doesn't. It actually comes from this. Like, this crosses over, like, King's Road crosses over to where, you know, Strong Style is now copying King's Road, in my opinion, I mean, that might be a controversial take, and maybe some New Japan stands are gonna get upset with me. I don't care; it doesn't matter to me. But like, that's what I think because like there is a there is a clear demarcation from the time of like you know Tanahashi's era of him being on top to this shift into more of a kind of King's Road element. There's still elements of what you would consider strong style. I mean, these are very ephemeral terms, obviously. Like, you can't really you know like concretely say this is strong style this is king's rope but you 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 know what i'm talking about jp right oh absolutely i completely agree they i just think the gaijins they got in they replaced the big brawlers with technicians that's what they did to fit the kind of athletic style of what we would have these days it's a it's a very like when you say it, it it seems kind of obvious really that they would take from it because it's the most logical and if you've got a those four five people on top you've got you need to tell that kind of story because you always need to keep an interest in all of them so it's it like and if you're gonna and everything is either like everything is taken from everything else isn't it and adapted it's the same in any kind of popular culture you know music books films etc it would be silly not to be influenced by one of the greatest periods of booking that has ever existed in wrestling 
Well, like, I mean, it's like bad not to take an influence from it. Well, I mean, it's it's been said that you know Tanahashi's favorite wrestler when he was growing up was Kenta Kobashi. Mm. So obviously, so he was obviously a huge All Japan fan of the 1990s. So that's the kind of thing that he brings into going into, you know, like when when he joins the New Japan Dojo. It's like obviously he's influenced by you know his his senpais before him, Nagata and Kojima and Tenzan, people like that, and and of course with you know Mudo and and Chono and people like that. But you know, like you can always tell, like at, when he becomes a main eventer, it's very clear to see that hey. I'm gonna like take all the stuff I loved as a kid and try to bring it into this, you know, this scene, this to this company that I'm in, that I'm the the leader of now. Oh yeah, and think of the way he built up a card as ace, and the job that he did, and realizing it wasn't as simple as a you you put him over, it's one and done, and this is now the now this is the guy. He knew what all of the things that Okada needed in order to reach that next level, and I think in this match. You notice that with Jumbo. He knew all of the things that Masawa needed to show in order to prove to an audience that this guy is going to be the ace in the future, in the very near future. Well, you, you say that, JP, and like a lot of people might might say, oh, like, so, you know, like Tanahashi is like the modern version of Masawa or he's the modern version of Kobashi. No, mm-hmm. Like, if you think about it, like he's the modern version of Jumbo Saruta. Yeah. In some ways he is. He's more like... In some ways, isn't it? Because you're thinking of it, he's holding the company at a point where creatively it's it's pretty destabilized. I mean, it was a lot more destabilized when Tanner was on top, when he was first on top in New Japan. It was fucking shambles at that point in time. But he's the steadying influence who gets them through this period, who kind of realizes what his job is in the future, but also knows the way to do it so it'll have the most effect. Like, it's not... It's never the case of just putting someone over, isn't it? It's giving what you're doing is you're giving the fans a reason to invest in this other person other than you know, and not just you. And it's a very sort of, you know, he's a selfless wrestler. And, you know, we said at the very start of this, um, Jumbo had lost the triple cap crown three days earlier. How often would Jumbo have lost two matches in a row, two big high profile singles matches in a row? Like, would that have? ever happened other than the sort of start of his career and this is someone who um has sort of you know he understood about how to do it and how to do it the right way and thought kind of of the bigger picture in doing it and obviously the fact we're talking about this match proves how successful jumbo was as as that as well and you know and and tanner has that kind of similar mentality Yes, definitely. So let's wrap it up on, on that point. JP, thank you so much for joining me walking down the long and winding road. And uh, I hope your neck's okay. And uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't take too many uh, drops on the head there. Um, where can people find more of JP Houlihan? Oh, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure being on here. Loved it again. Um, you can find more of me. Um, I, I'm on Grapple Spotlight, but also Grapple Roundtable. Um, which you can subscribe to at grapple.podbean.com um, or all other podcast providers. Put in grapple, G-R-A-P-P-L. You can find me at uh, Twitter at uh, JPGP as well, three E's. 
And you can find me on Twitter at uh, at WHPark9. You can also find me every month with John Pollock on Post Perez. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I definitely want to have you back on to talk about another match from this era down yes. the line, JP. And, uh, you know, if, if no one takes the uh, September 1st, 1990 Jumbo versus Masala match, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do that. But, uh, you know, if someone else wants to do that, that's that's perfectly fine. We can always talk about maybe, you know, uh, uh, you know, global energetic tough. I, I'm, I'm sure a, a favorite <laughs> faction of yours uh, talking about the Del Wilkes, Johnny Ace, you know, Taking Kenny Kobashi to new levels with uh, with their alliance with him, but or or something wow. actually good like you know the Holy Demon Army versus you know Masawa and Kobashi or Masawa and Akiyama or or something like that. But um, thank you again, and and on behalf of all the, the listeners, I want to say thank you. Uh, I, I really appreciate all the, a lot of the positive feedback people have been giving the show, and until next time, I will say goodbye.